chapters written up until this point through the book of Isaiah. First of all, in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, he told the people of Judah of their disobedience and their sin toward God. And he reminded them of their willingness to to worship false gods, to worship the gods of, of their neighbors, the Canaanites. And he told them that of their heart and the the things that they were doing would eventually lead to their downfall and the downfall all of these things would be demonstrated by one of the things was the destruction of their capital city which was Jerusalem another thing was being the destruction of the temple which was the the center of everything in, in Jewish culture at that time and the other thing was being taken captive by the Babylonians of course, this was something that was prophecy into the future, probably between 150 and 200 years yet to come. And Isaiah went on to tell them about the condition of their lives specifically. In addition to idolatry, which was bad enough, he gave another example of, of their fasting. And uh, this seems to be a good thing. He talked about that they were fasting. And we would look at that and say, well, well that was a good thing, wasn't it? Well, here's the problem. The people of Judah took something that was good, and they even messed that up. They took fasting. On the days that they fasted, they made sure that everybody knew they were fasting. They didn't bathe. They didn't comb their hair. They walked around in clothing that was meant to be worn at a time of sorrow and mourning. That was the time that sackcloth was worn. It was a time of mourning, a time of sorrow. And yet, it was just a simple day of fasting, and that's what they wore. They walked around and they threw ashes in the air that fell down on them, which was another sign of sorrow and mourning. All of this just so somebody would know they were fasting. So they took something good and they made something bad out of it. In addition to that, Isaiah told them that on the day that you fast, you go out and you take advantage of your employees. And it got even worse. He said at the end of the day, you often end up quarreling with your neighbors and that usually ends up in beating on them with your fist. Nice way to end a fast. So he was saying, you're, you're serving false gods. You're worshiping the idols of the, the people of Canaan that you were supposed to come in and destroy completely that you didn't. And now you've taken on their gods and you've taken the few things that were good and you've turned them into something bad. And still... Even though they did all those things, at the end of the day, they would cry out to God and say, why haven't you answered our prayers and why haven't you heard us? We fasted and we've prayed and you haven't answered our prayers. And God would say, but you didn't do it right. And I'm sure it was something along the lines of they'd look back at God and go, what? What did we do? We were fasting. Yeah, but it was all the other stuff you did along with it. They did something on the outside that they tried to make seem like it was what was in their heart, and it wasn't. Sure. Yeah, it's exactly right. It's, it's very much like people that show up at church on Christmas and Easter. That's their obligatory time to show up at church. And then they live however they want the rest of the year. And the, if you ask them if you're a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Christmas and Easter. Isaiah told them that what they were doing and the way that they were supposedly serving God 
that God was not pleased with that behavior. He told them in the days of fasting and in general in their lives that the problem was that they were caring about only themselves and about what other people thought of them. Instead, what they should have been doing is looking at the people around them and seeing those that were hungry, seeing those that needed clothes, seeing those that were homeless, and reaching out to those people to do those type of things. Of course, they didn't even think about those things. Why? Because they were so caught up in their own little world and their own little display of what Christian, what they thought living for God was. It means... what. If you take all of that and boil it down, here's what it comes down to. It should have been what was in their heart. And instead, there was nothing in their heart. It was just an outward appearance. And as Christians, as Christians today, we have that same directive. We need to be careful that it's not just something on the outside that labels us a Christian. It's what's on the inside that should show on the outside that is what's pleasing to God. If we have to walk around and tell people that we're a Christian in order for them to know that we're Christians, then we probably need to look at how we're living our lives in front of them. There should be something about us that people look and say, there's something about you. What is it that's different about your life? As we've said before, we shouldn't, there's nothing wrong with wearing a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus. I'm not saying that. But if you have to wear a t-shirt that says, I love Jesus, for somebody to know that you're a Christian, there's something wrong. And that's what was going on with the people of Judah. They were doing the outward thing so people would think they were holy, yet on the inside, there was nothing there. Much like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Jesus described the Pharisees in His day of... Whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. There was nothing of life inside them. It was just pretty and whitewashed on the outside, and there was all dead inside. Far too many people in our day have done the exact same thing. Back to our lesson. Keeping in mind, this is not the first time that these people had been warned by a prophet and chose to ignore the warning. There had been others that had come along. In fact, if you go all the way back to the time when they were in slavery in Egypt and God provided a way of escape for them so that they could go to the land that He promised to them, time and time again, they turned away from God and then something happened. They would come back, they would repent, they'd serve God for a little while and they'd turn away from God again. And this has been this same pattern over and over and over. And now Isaiah is saying... This is what's going to happen. This is how you've lived, and this is what's going to happen. They had ignored opportunity after opportunity to do what's right, and they simply chose to do it their way. There are people that sit and hear the Word of God taught. They hear the Word of God preached. They feel the Spirit of God drawing them, and they feel God speaking to them in the way they should live, and they choose to still do it their own way. Isn't it amazing how human nature has not changed? Exactly the same way that it was back in Isaiah's day. And Isaiah not only told them of their sin, he also told them what they should have been doing all along. 
He went on to tell them that had they been serving God in the way that he had commanded them to do so, here's what your reward would have been. Look in Isaiah 58, verses 8 and 9. This is what he said. If you would have done the things you should have done, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and malicious talk. In other words, instead of going around fasting and doing the things that you were doing, if you would have been looking at the people around you and trying to, to live in a way that God was pleasing to God and looking at other people and trying to help with them, then these are the things that would happen to you. But you didn't. And because of that, now there was going to be judgment. And that judgment would come at the hands of the Babylonians. But even with, this, is, this just shows us what a loving God that we serve. Even with the reality of impending judgment, God didn't leave it at that. Isaiah is prophesying all these things, speaking for God, saying, you've sinned, you've done all of these things, you've had opportunity after opportunity, you've chosen to go do your own thing. Had you done the right thing, God would have blessed you and all of these things would have happened, but now you're going to be judged and the Babylonians are going to come in and take you captive. But that's not all. He promised them that after a time of captivity that they would be allowed to return to Judah and rebuild Jerusalem, their capital city, and rebuild the temple that was important to them. He noted, even at this point, of all the things they've been through, he noted that after all of these years in captivity, when they were finally released to go, that there would be some of them that would say, I think I'll stay here. And we see that today as well. The promise of freedom from sin is promised to us, and it's for everyone. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That means we don't have to live in bondage to sin. If we choose to do that, then we can just continue to do that. But we don't have to do it. The penalty for our sin was paid for by the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, on a cross. The one who was without sin died for all of mankind that was born into sin. So there is a way to escape for us today. And Isaiah was saying, at the time when you have a chance to leave, some of you will say, well, it's really not so bad here. We have a place to live. We have our own business. They don't beat us. I mean, we're, we're in captivity and we can't leave, but we kind of live our own life here. And there's people today that are in bondage of sin, and even though they know that there's salvation available, they choose to stay in sin because they go, well, it's really not that bad after all. Or there's some that say, but I've done so much. There is no one that has sinned that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover that sin. For us to say, to sit in the presence of God and say, 
I, I hear what you're saying and, and I know that God will forgive me and, and you're telling me that God can fi- forgive my sin and that Jesus died for my sin and I hear that you're saying all that but I don't think it's enough for me. Then what you're saying in fact is that God sent His Son to earth to live as a man and He was tortured and hung on a cross to die but that wasn't good enough. Well, I wouldn't say that. But that's what we're saying when we say that it's not, it's not enough for me. I've just done so much and I've done so much wrong. It doesn't matter what you've done wrong. When the blood of Christ cleanses your life, then you are free from sin. That sin is gone. The Bible speaks that it's gone as far as the east is from the west. That's a long ways. I heard someone say one time, we used to hear a lot about people use the term in the, that our sins were cast into the, the sea of forgetfulness. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about a sea of forgetfulness, but he said if there were a sea of forgetfulness, that there would be a sign when you got there that said no fishing allowed. That's where sin goes. When it's gone, it's gone. If you came back to God a couple years later and you said, God, you know, I really want to talk to you about that sin when I was... Hold on, what what sin? It's not remembered against us anymore. It says in John 3.16 that whoever, and I believe that whoever means me, And I believe that whoever means you, and it means anybody that's hearing this today, it doesn't matter what you've done. God loves you, and He sent His Son, His one and only Son, to die so that your sins could be remitted. So after all of the other prophecy and all of the other things that Isaiah wrote in the book of Isaiah, we now come to the place where Isaiah is telling them about their ultimate reward. When all of these other things have taken place, Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 19. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. These verses that Isaiah is is writing, they describe a, a time of unprecedented blessing for Israel. But these, these verses also, much as much of the book of Isaiah has, it has a dual fulfillment. It was not just for the people that Isaiah was speaking to right then or to, in the coming 150, 200 years later. It also speaks to us. In fact, if you look at the book of Isaiah in this chapter and you look at the book of Revelation, you can see this tremendous correlation. In fact, let's look at Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And I'm, I'm not going to turn this lesson into a, a tremendous study in prophecy and prophecy and all of that. But I do want us to look and see that Isaiah was writing to the people of his day, his contemporaries, but it also came all the way down to a day that's in our future. Because as John saw his vision as he was on the Isle of Patmos, he wrote almost the same things. His prophecy said that God would create a, a Jerusalem to be a, a delight. And this came to have a, a, a profound meaning for future generations of Israelites who went into exile in Babylon. Remember this, everything he's writing here hasn't happened. And maybe now at some time later, they have realized that all of the other things that Isaiah prophesied had come to pass. Someday in the future, they're living in Babylon as, as cap captives. And they're saying to each other, he told us of the destruction of Jerusalem. And that happened. He told us that they were going to destroy the temple. And, and that happened. He told us that we were going to be taken captive into Babylon. And here we are. I sure hope what he said about that new city happens. I sure hope that happens because if all that other stuff happened, I can live with all of that as long as I have hope that there's going to be something better. There's going to be something coming. And you know what? All the other stuff, if he knew about all that, and he knew the name of the king and, and all of these things, and I'm just going to hold on to the one thing, that there is something better that's coming. And the reference to a new heaven and a new earth for Isaiah's day was not literally a new heaven and new earth. Most likely it was a statement of things that were the most important to them. Their, their capital city of Jerusalem, that was, that was the place, the temple that was built in Jerusalem was the center of culture for the, the Jewish people. So he's saying, what I'm going to give you is something brand new and better than you've ever seen before. That was for them. As to the extent of the city of Jerusalem and to the extent of the destruction of the temple, when they got to Babylon, I assure you they knew that there was nothing left behind. In fact, there's a Jewish historian named Flavius Josephus, and he wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews. Look what he wrote in this, and I quote, And now the king of Babylon sent, sent Nebuzaradan, the general of his army, to pillage the temple, who had it also in command to burn it and the royal palace, and to lay the city even with the ground, and to transplant the people to Babylon. When this general went in Jerusalem, his orders were to flatten it to the ground. I believe as they were taken captive off off back into Babylon, when they looked back, there was nothing. It was desolate. It was flat to the ground. It had been burned and pillaged and all the things from the temple were stolen. And they looked back and said, there's nothing there anymore. And they get to Babylon and someplace along there they start looking at the things Isaiah said. And there's that promise that someday we will have something that's better than whatever existed before. 
And here's the good part. When the temple was rebuilt, it was rebuilt not just another building, or they didn't just throw up a, a, a prefab building with a, a good-looking front on it and all that. No, it was rebuilt in what the Bible described as splendor. In fact, look back. Isaiah had described it earlier in his writings. Isaiah 54, verses 11 through 12. O afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will build you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with sapphires. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. I believe that Isaiah was saying, what you had before can't even compare to what's coming. Yes, I know there will be hardship. And yes, there will be some things you go through. And yes, you'll see this, what you had and what you, you looked at as being special is destroyed. But there's something better coming. And not only that, he said there would be peace. Isaiah 54, 13 through 15. All your sons will be taught by the Lord. This is after they're restored. And great will be your children's peace. In righteousness will you be established. Tyranny will be far from you and you'll have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. What a promise. What a promise. What a, a tremendous promise to hold on to as they were in captivity in Babylon and knowing that everything in their life has been destroyed and everything's gone, but yet, as bad as things seem, there's something that we can't even comprehend that's coming. And due in, in large part to the absence of sorrow in this new Jerusalem, the city will be a source of delight and joy for the people and as well as, as God as well. And I think it's interesting that Isaiah presents the Lord as having feelings for his people. In, in, cha in chapter 65 and verse 19, he says he would rejoice with them over the new Jerusalem. Do you ever think about it that God has feelings for and with us. I think too often we, we think that God just doesn't understand how we feel. Things happen. In fact, earlier in, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 63 and verse 9, Isaiah spoke of, of God suffering with the people. He said, in all their distresses, he too was distressed. God understands. When we're hurting, God understands how we feel. When we're joyful, He rejoices with us. When we're distressed, He's distressed with us. I think so many times we take God and we put Him as this far away, distant entity that we hope we'll see someday. And other than that, there's really not a whole lot of connection there. And we say so many times, God loves us. But do we really mean that He loves and cares about us? Do we really understand that it's not just a passive love from a distance? 
It's a God that cares about everything that happens in your life. It's a God that loves you so much that regardless of what you might be going through, He understands and He is preparing something far better for you someday. For us today, and looking ahead into what God has for us, if Isaiah was describing a literal heavenly city for us, I would assume that it's going to be the eternal dwelling place for all of the saints. And most likely this is the same thing that Paul wrote about in Hebrews 12 and 22. He described it as the, he- the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. It's also probably that place that Jesus referred to in John 14 and 2 when he spoke that, that there were many mansions. In my Father's house are many mansions in the King James Version. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. There's something better coming. Isaiah 65, verses 20 through 24. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought of a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat, for as the days of a tree... So will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. That that is just beautiful. The description of what was to come for the people of that day was an amazing one. Most likely at the time that Isaiah wrote this, the people thought, he is crazy. After all, the the city of Jerusalem and the temple seemed to be just fine. Hang on, I just read this. I'll be right back. Walk outside and look around. There's the temple. The city's just fine. This guy's nuts. He's talking about something to come after this is destroyed and we're still standing here in the middle of the city. At some point it would give them hope. At this point, they probably just didn't like Isaiah very much. I'm assured that they didn't because it was almost 150 years before any of these things took place. And I'm sure for all of this 150 years, people would walk by Isaiah and go, idiot. You know, but someday when they were in captivity, when they had nothing of their, of their own and their city was destroyed and their temple was destroyed and all they had was to hold on to the hope of something better. That's exactly right. 
We, absolutely. There were a lot of them, I'm sure, that died off in the meantime. And then there were those that had grown up knowing nothing but Babylon. But hopefully that had been passed down enough that there was still a glimmer of hope for everyone to know that there is something better coming. And the important thing was that someday they would realize it. And then when it actually happened, what a tremendous source of joy that it must have been. The promises were, they were incredible. It was amazing what Isaiah was writing. In every respect, the new city that Isaiah was describing would be superior to the old one. For the exiles that were coming out of Babylon, there were three blessings that Isaiah mentions. One of them, the first one, is a return to long lives. Even though they would still die eventually and death would still exist, life expectancy would be greatly extended, maybe even in the way that it was at the time of Adam and his descendants. Infant mortality would drop to zero. If somebody died when they were 100 years old, people would stand at the funeral and they would go, how could this happen? He was so young. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> Not exactly those words. He was so young. He was in the prime of life. Or he was just... Right out accursed because he didn't even live past 100. When Isaiah compared the long existence to the existence of a tree, it's very possible that he had in mind the olive tree. And I didn't know this, but an olive tree in that area can live as long as a thousand years. Now that's hard for us to imagine. Amazing. And so picture in Isaiah's mind that he's saying that life will be as a tree, and he's thinking of these olive trees that he knows, some of them have been around for a thousand years. This is a pretty long life. Second of all, he says there will be profitable work. Isaiah promised that they wouldn't toil in vain. Rather, they would enjoy the fruits of their labor. Well, this is a direct contrast to what's has happened to them. Remember, they've worked all their lives to build up what they had in the city of Jerusalem. They've saved and built and, and, and planned, and all of those things are completely wiped out when the Babylonians come in and destroy the city. But he's saying that won't happen anymore. Now when you toil, you will profit from it, and you will build houses and you'll live in them. You won't build houses and someone else live in them. When you work, you'll receive what you work for. And somebody won't take it and spread the wealth around. You get what you work for. Isaiah, Isaiah also assured them that they would dwell in safety and security in their homes. And he said that they would be a people that would be blessed by the Lord from generation to generation. 
How amazing is that? Here is a promise to people that are in captivity. Their city, everything they have known has been destroyed. Their entire history has been flattened to the ground. And now someone's saying, you'll have something better than you ever had before. Your descendants will be safe. When you toil, you'll see something in return for it. It was something to hold on to. And the third thing was answered prayer. And as phenomenal as those things were, this one just strikes me as just being just the coolest thing. The Lord would answer the people's prayer without delay. In fact, before they even made their request. How about that? Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. And finally, much as it was in the, I believe, in the Garden of Eden, they would enjoy this close presence with the Lord and this intimate relationship with Him would be restored. So if all of these things are also assigned to us for what is going to be in heaven, what can we expect? Well, I believe long life goes without saying. Actually, it's as long as it gets. It's for eternity. The people back in that day, a thousand years might seem like a long time, but in eternity, a thousand years is nothing. Romans 2 and 7. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. That's a promise to us. Those of us who have done the things that we have been commanded in the Word of God, He will give us eternal life. Better than what the Israelites had. A thousand years sounds good when you read it, but eternal life sounds a whole lot better. And some people might say, well, I'm really not sure about that whole, you know, kind of floating around on clouds and, and playing the harp and singing for like forever. If that's all heaven was, that still wouldn't be too bad. I can live with that. But here's another way to look at it. In our limited imagination... It's hard to imagine what heaven really is going to be. Think of it this way. When you were eight years old, in the scope of all your wealth of experience of life, the ultimate pleasures were a big chocolate bar, ice cream, and I remember specifically getting a new pack of baseball cards with that flat piece of gum in it. Those were the, the, the phenomenal things in life when you're eight years old. If somebody at that time set you down and explained the wonderful feeling of romance and love, your response probably would have been, ooh, that's gross. Leave me alone. You would have probably been at least perplexed by it and maybe even repulsed or grossed out by it. 
Because as an eight-year-old, what seemed good was a chocolate bar ice cream and a new pack of baseball cards. As you got older, most likely that changed. I hope it did if you're sitting here with your wife or your girlfriend. If not, don't look at her. She'll smack you. In the same way, in our human experience, we have difficulty appreciating the wonders of what God has in store for us. Why? Because we just don't understand. We read about, somebody talks about streets of gold and, and, and gates of pearl and, and walls of jasper, and we go, wow, that's great. I have no idea. I can't. Yeah, that's great. We're going to live forever. Yeah, that's great. I, I can't think of how long forever is. So in our experience, we really can't understand all of these things. But you know what? It doesn't change the fact that they're true. When the people of Israel read those things that Isaiah wrote, they didn't understand it either. But you know what? It was still true. And at some point in their life, they had nothing to hold on to except the promises. And there are times in our life when maybe things have gotten so bad and we look at life, look at the things around us and we go, how can I, how can I keep going? What am I going to do? I can't believe things have gotten like they've gotten. But there's something I can hold on to. Exactly. Exactly. There's something I can hold on to that I don't understand. It is a mystery. But I know that the Word of God, and I look back through, through all of history, and I look in the Old Testament, see all those things, and historically I know that every one of those things happened. And I'm just crazy enough to believe that it's for me too. One thing that we can do as believers, we can believe and know for certain that the things that we enjoy most, a chocolate bar, ice cream, and a new pack of baseball cards, if that's what we enjoy most, will pale in comparison with what is to come when we get to heaven. So then we can look forward to those things with a sense of anticipation and wonder. Peter described in, in his writings in 2 Peter 3, 13 and 14, our anticipation of a new heaven and a new earth in this way. But keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The place where we're going is the place that righteousness lives. And Peter was saying, we should do everything we can possibly do. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Since we know that those things are promised to us, then we need to do everything we can do while we're here on this earth to make sure that someday we see it. Maybe I can't, maybe I can't understand how phenomenal heaven's going to be. But I'll just hold on to this. I know it's going to be better than anything I've ever seen. 
The little girl went for a walk with her dad out in the country one night, and as they, they got out away from the, the lights of the houses, anybody ever done that? And you get out there where there's no other lights, and you look up in the sky, and she looks up, and the sky looks like this, this velvet cloth stretched out with sparkling diamonds all over it. Anybody ever done that? And the little girl looks up with amazement, and she, she looks at her dad, and she says, if this is the wrong side of heaven and it's this beautiful, what do you think the right side will look like? So what is heaven really going to be like for us? As great as the description that Isaiah gave the people of his day for what the new Jerusalem would be, I don't think it even remotely compares to what heaven will be for us. It's a place that is prepared for us that we never die. It's a place that knows no sorrow, knows no tears. There are no famines, no floods, no earthquakes, no hurricanes. We will live with God forever in this unimaginable joy for eternity. There will be no memories of of past hurts and past sorrows. You know how here on earth, something really, really good can happen and you can be happy, happy, happy and, and you stop for a minute and you think about something that's happened in the past and it kind of just like, I still remember that. I believe when we get to heaven, all of those things are going to be wiped away. There will be no sorrow. There will be no memory of the, the bad things that happened to us down on this earth. There will be no grief. There will be no shame. There will be no sadness or regret. There's no sickness or disease. There will be no weeping or crying. Not only will we, will we be free of, of past painful experiences, all of our future experiences will be free of pain and sorrows and tears. All of the things that we hoped for on this earth, but due to circumstances, they just never happened. Now they'll all be fully attainable. I believe the people in Isaiah's day must have looked so many times as they were in captivity to the Babylonians and thought, oh, I hope the things that he's saying are true. I hope the things that Isaiah wrote are true. And for us, there's those same times. Things don't look good. Things might be difficult. You might be going through things in your life that you've never been through before. But we can still hold on to the promise that there is something better than you can even imagine that is promised to us. And sometimes those things seem a long ways off. But I will tell you this. For the people of of Isaiah's time, it was maybe 200 years and then another 70 years before they were allowed to go back and rebuild. And maybe we'll have to wait a long time. But I assure you, just like it was worth it to them, it will be worth it when we get there. God always keeps His promises. 
Time and time again in the Word of God, we see God make a promise and we see that it happened just like He said. And it might not be in the timing that we thought it should be in, but it will happen. There's a song that was written many years ago. And it says, Now if walls there weren't jasper, and if streets were not gold, if mansions would crumble and folks there still grew old, still I'd see everything I've been longing to see. For if Jesus is there, it will be heaven for me. That's right. And with that in mind, let's be reminded of what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3 and 14, that we should make every effort to be found spotless, to be blameless, and at peace with Him. Because we truly have a promise of a great future. The promises are true. Those streets of gold and walls of jasper, they are true. But that's not the thing that's going to matter the most. I want to see the one that was willing to die for me when I was only worthy of eternal death. And that in itself, if there were no streets of gold, if there were no mansions, if there was nothing else, that in itself will make whatever we endure on this earth worthwhile. God bless you.